You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, we take a look at what happens when Roland Emmerich takes the reins of our big atomic friend as Hollywood gets its first true chance to make a movie about the King of the Monsters. It's Godzilla 1998. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Bondzilla Podcast. Another exciting edition of uh, this this podcast. Yeah, you're you're looking forward to this one I'm very quite much a bit, actually. I am, I am Nick. I'm Will, and uh, yeah, we've got uh, one I've been looking forward to seeing for quite a while. Yeah, now. yeah, the probably one of the more infamous additions uh, to the canon yes. for many reasons, as as we will get into. Um, but uh, Nick, given that it is a Godzilla episode. Sometimes we have little tangential things we talk about in, sure. in reference to the sure. uh, uh, it, to the series that we are talking about. Uh, and um, since we had last spoke about mm-hmm. uh, Godzilla, since you know we're we're kind of uh, well, we're all caught up on Bond. We're like I at least in behind the scenes catched up on uh, the Godzilla films. Yeah. Uh, one uh, series of films that I've decided to delve into. Um, as they were provided to me, and I am more and more interested in getting more and more into the Toho Kaiju universe, and I decided to take my first step into the Gamera series. Yes, yeah, so Gamera is not Toho. I mean, it was, it was in the same sort of realm of kind of big, you know, classic monster movie that has had some modern interpretations. Yeah, it, it is definitely considered a uh, Gamera. So for those of you who don't know, Gamera is another... Uh, another kaiju monster, a uh, unofficial rival to Godzilla. Uh, mm-hmm. there, there's not actually any kind of uh, fan anonymity between the two. It's yeah. just kind of like your alternate Godzilla, like a little bit less famous, but still has like an like, like a still pretty had, big had cult following. Cult following multiple movies. You yeah, know. a lot of a lot of them it's actually also, also been featured on Mystery Science Theater, like Godzilla. Oh, it has its own Showa, Hasey, and modern era of films. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Gamera is a giant flying turtle. Uh, who is way more uh, from its conception the um, protector of the of the world and the universe mm. uh, is mostly what Gamera is okay. more so known for than Godzilla ever was. Okay. And um, it- <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just. I'm you just, sound so forlorn about it. <laughs> no, no, just, you don't have any time for Gamera. No, I do. I just, um, I'm just. You know, adding my OKs, and so like, yeah, I'm just I'm done. I'm adding your OKs, crossing your T's, dotting your eyes, dotting your eyes, putting a little hearts over my eyes. Yeah, do you you dot your J's though, mm. right? Uh, my yeah. lowercase J's. Lo- okay, I'm just but, you know, saying. You got to cross your yeah, you cross your uppercase J's and dot your. Why isn't that J's. the phrase? I don't know. It's like because uh, it's you know it's a little it's a little wordy. <laughs> I'm gonna cross my uppercase J's, dot my lowercase J's. Um, but um, anyway, so I uh. Uh, took my first step into the Gamera series with the uh, 1995's uh, Gamera Guardian of the Universe, um, which uh, was the first official reboot of the uh, Gamera series. Mm -hmm. Uh, Interesting enough that it came out later, or in the same year, 
as 1995's Godzilla vs. Destroya. Yeah, that's what I was actually about to say. So, like, as the Godzilla franchise was seemingly ending for, for, a, for a spell, Toho's Godzilla, that, you know, this Gamera, you know, series kind of has its rebirth. Mm-hmm. Big fan of the Hasey reboot of Gamera. I knew very little about Gamera in general, and I kind of did what you and I normally do with movies like this, is that we like kind of watch this version, and then we do our little wiki search to see, like, okay, like the little bit of the history of it. And it, and it does seem, from my knowledge, a very solid reboot. They do the whole, like, the first film is uh, the more... Uh, the uh, the they bring the classic villain, which is a uh, swarm of pterodactyl creatures called the Gaios, and uh, they kind of reinvent the mythology, but like bring the familiar from like what was in the Gamera series before then. And my understanding is, as it goes forward, it's starting to do like new, uh, d- like different monsters, and uh, and it actually is a series that has gone on to make. A couple, uh, two other sequels to that original reboot, another type of standalone reboot, and there's been kind of like a Gamera movie in like production limbo ever since then. Um, So I I very much enjoyed it. It, It's definitely stands as like as as more of the family friendly as you can get, Um, even though it's not completely family friendly, still in that spirit of like these hasty Godzilla films, a little bit lighter to make it a little bit more palatable to that. Like it's, it's more of the superhero film version of a Godzilla, of a hasty Godzilla film. The, the type of threat, the tone and what it's getting at is I, I was just very impressed by how distinct, distinct it was from the from the Godzilla films, and it's not just another fare of like, oh, giant monster uh, attacking mm-hmm. and uh, the the horror and tragedy of that. Yeah. It's actually a lot, very 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 enjoyable film, and I can't wait to continue on on watching those. Yeah. So, uh, and did uh, did Roland Emmerich ever attempt to make a uh, Gamera movie? Uh, no, in uh, which Gamera is fortunately nothing. not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect segue into today's uh, discussion uh, <laughs> of movie. Uh, probably, as I said up at the top of the show, the infamous, uh, like t- everywhere actually, not only in Godzilla fandom, but to like just cinema in general, <laughs> yes. I would say. Yeah. Uh, and uh, today, Nick, um, we are. Finally, for the first time, officially stepping out of Toho. We're stepping out of Japan. We're entering American shores. We're going to Hollywood. We're going to Hollywood with this one, Nick. And we are finally talking about the first full-fledged American made, produced, acted... Uh, well, there's French actors in this movie. Yeah, too. yeah, no, yeah. They're, they're, I was gonna say, I was gonna say uh, American too, but it's like the, you know, it's Roland Emmerich, so yeah. it's like. Uh, but we're talking about Godzilla, aka Godzilla '98, because because we, you know, we've had you know flirtations with the American Godzilla before. We've mm-hmm. talked about you know King of the Monsters from uh, you know. The Godzilla King of the Monsters from, you know, 56 or whatever, 55, 56. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about how we almost had it in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, we're actually going to do a slight recap just because yeah, but just we, like, we've kind but just of in teased general. like that there have been yeah. these but so, uh, the, the so what we, we've gone to, we're in the 90s, we're in 90s cinema in America, Yeah. Uh, Hollywood, what, what, 
what led to this <laughs> to this movie? What is our like, hit? What is what is? How did this movie get made, dude? Once again, how you, did this get made? That's a different podcast altogether. It's a good podcast, but let's get into the history of the uh, journey of getting this film uh, produced because this reaches all the way back uh, to the Showa era of the Toho Godzilla films. So to recap some info from way back when, uh, the push for an American's Godzilla uh, began with a U.S. film distributor, Henry G. Saperstein. Um, uh, We had talked about it before, but to give a little bit of history uh, on this man, he was a um, Hollywood producer. Uh, who got his? Who started his career in the mid '50s as the president of Television's Personality Inc., which was a company that dealt with uh, tie-in merchandise for uh, television characters. Uh, but he eventually uh, purchased uh, the studio UPA, aka United Productions of oh, America. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so eventually, um, Saperstein was a pro- uh, was approached by marketers looking for theatrical monster films, which led him on the hunt for some big monster flicks. Um, the studios that's at the time that specialized in making like notable monster flicks uh, um, outside of the U.S. were uh, Hammer Films, which were primarily in England, and then of course there was Toho. And because Hammer had already had uh, big American distributors, Saperstein formed a relationship with Toho. And uh, we had talked about this, and this is what led to the American collaborations with uh, such Toho films as Frankenstein Conquers the World. Uh, the War of the Gargantuans, and of course, Invasion of Astro Monster. Yes, of course. Uh, the, uh, primarily, you can see that in the inclusion of American actors uh, mm-hmm. within that, especially Astro Monster yeah. with an American co-lead. Um, so, despite these collaborations, uh, Saperstein always was interested in a full-fledged American-produced Godzilla film, and for the next 10 years, pressured Toho for the rights or at least the permission to pitch one and circle it around Hollywood. Um, so uh, so despite Saperstein's uh, immense interest in trying to get this film made, the project actually came up quite ap- haphazardly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was at a meeting with uh, the heads of... Uh, with some producers, not the heads, uh, producers at Sony uh, Pictures... Uh, the producer's names, Carrie Woods and Robert Freyd, um, for discussions of a live-action Mr. Magoo movie. Which did eventually get made at some point. Yes, exactly. But they, even though they met for that, uh, Woods and Freed were much more interested in, uh, hey, uh, what about those uh, Godzilla rights? We heard you've been shopping those around a little bit. Uh, especially Freed, who was super interested and he was like he was like wanted nothing more than to get an american godzilla film produced he was one of these guys big fan of the the uh the franchise uh and just could see the potential of like you know this is something that we could really make work Mm -hmm. unfortunately columbia rejected it as well as tristar oh no (laughs) both uh a lot so they were just getting rejections from all like the the sony uh the sony owned production studios like nobody wanted to make this film and then when all hopes seemed lost uh freed who at the suggestion of his uh was it freed no it was woods at the suggestion of his wife um actually he said you know what i'm gonna take this to the top went to the top brass of sony to peter goober who was the ceo of sony pictures uh, and uh, pitched him the idea of like, let what about a Godzilla film? Like, can can we do this? Goober shared the ant- the um, excitement for the project and was one of these people who was like, I see it. 
I instantly see it in my oh, head. Man, a like, Godzilla picture. God, I can just imagine <laughs> the film version of it, like where it's played by you know somebody who's who plays a good asshole, like where he's like, you know, oh, like a Ben Mendelsohn. Oh like, no, you know what I'm thinking? <laughs> what I'm thinking think? of the Kevin Smith story where uh, John. Oh yeah, 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 uh, yeah. yeah it's yeah. just like Peter's. Just like yeah. all right, I can see it. He's like looking up with his hands. Polar bears. <laughs> It's exactly what it sounds Godzilla like. Godzilla is the most dangerous killer in the animal kingdom. <laughs> Can you imagine, um, was it Les Grossman, the Tom Cruise character? Yes. Okay. Like, and that's also like a combination. <laughs> um, so, uh, so Goober was uh, very ecstatic about the potential of the project and actually assigned the project. He gave the complete go ahead. <laughs> make this Godzilla film. And guess what? TriStar, you're going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> Just again, like. Just, who, a, just who, a look on their faces. And, of course, like they're probably like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we got this. Meanwhile, they're like stewing. They're mad at Woods for like, oh, come on, man. It's like we just said no to this. Because essentially, like, we have to remember that the Godzilla – like the Godzilla franchise is not the big popular, well-regarded series yeah. in, in America, especially at the no, time. No, we've like, talked about this before, just kind of, you know, the, the up-and-down nature of it in terms of getting american releases and the how those films are interpreted and you know how they're become you know silly and that that kind of mm-hmm. th- that viewpoint of it and especially cuz it's like you know y- you get to that point of like when did godzilla become you know that sort of thing mm-hmm. on on international shores you well, know well well it's going to be interesting i think this movie uh, has a kind of something to do with that but you also have to point uh, go in this direction of at this point, um, you know, we are kind of entering the the '90s and the the Hasty era at that yeah. time. So we are also in that period of they tried this, at least distributing a Toho one, complete failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they didn't even want to do uh, Biolanti. They didn't yeah. want to distribute Biolanti, and they had to, uh, so they did it a, a home release. Right. So there's already this. Um, it's twofold. Everybody thinks like it's campy and it's like there, there's really, there's nothing to do with a property that would be legitimate. Um, and also like there, it's already like kind of experienced this big American failure. Um, but, uh, regardless, um, Goober was all in on it. Um, Woods and Freed, um, gave, uh, the permission for also signed off on it. And TriStar was a go on, uh, getting an American Godzilla film. Uh, made so now we enter the year 1992, the year of Godzilla versus Mothra, uh, and TriStar uh, formally announced their acquisition of the rights uh, to make a Godzilla film from Toho. After a couple meetings, uh, Toho gave them the permission to do it, uh, and uh, they got permission. Um, there was a couple um, um, d- uh, aspects of the deal that they made with Toho uh, that the TriStar would produce a trilogy of Godzilla films. Um, that they gave Toho an advance payment with an annual licensing fee for the Godzilla character, um, exclusive distribution and merchandising rights, um, a profit percentage of the international ticket uh, sales uh, and merchandising, um, usage of, uh, they got limited usage of the rights to some of the monsters from the first 15 Godzilla films. But the biggest one was that Toho was allowed to continue producing their own domestic Godzilla films, um, while TriStar developed. And there was a little bit of that they wouldn't, um, make a movie like the same year. Yeah. Uh, but they were still allowed to make their own okay. Godzilla films. Yeah. Cause so it's still Mothra, so. 
So, um, so while Toho ultimately was open to giving TriStar creative freedom, they still submitted in a document of do's and don'ts for Godzilla. Um, and they said, like, take this. We would prefer that you abide by this. You don't have to. Um, a lot of it, uh, a lot of the things that were included in the document were a mandate of, like, the look and size of Godzilla, um, some of his abilities uh, mm-hmm. that they insisted be in it uh, that we would see. And, um, but uh, one of the funniest things was, like, Godzilla can't eat people. He can eat fish, but he can't eat people. <laughs> <laughs> that was like they, a big one. They for took them. that note to the uh, extreme. <laughs> uh, okay, so but I by yeah uh, we'll get to it. okay okay so now uh, TriStar is full fledged underway on making this uh, this uh, production happen. So we need a director. We do need a director. We do need a director for our Godzilla film. Uh, so this kind of gets into the area where. They meet with all the names you think they would meet at the time. Some of the names that they included were James Cameron, mm-hmm. um, Joe Johnston was in the mix, Paul Verhoeven was in the mix, uh, Tim Burton's name was actually in the mix because there was this kind of producerial thought that like, well, maybe we can do with the Godzilla film what Tim Burton did with Batman. So it's like maybe Tim Burton was... All these people turned down the film. Yeah. Um, so, But the most uh, promising, and this is something I think that would interest you, the most promising director of the bunch was speed director uh, Jan DeBont. Oh. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Speed is one of Nick's favorite movies. So Speed is, uh, so he's not only Speed, but he was he's a cinematographer of Die Hard and a mm-hmm. bunch of other movies. As we had mentioned in a previous episode, uh, screenwriters Ted Elliott and Terry Rosio, were, uh, yep. they were brought on uh, to write the script, the, the script. And between the three minds of uh, DeBont, uh, Elliott, and Rosio, uh, they came up with a surprisingly bonkers idea uh, mm-hmm. for the film. Uh, while DeBont, DeBont actually would go on with a full reboot and forego the nuclear themes and origins uh, of the original Godzilla mythos, and in this version, Godzilla would actually be a creation of Atlanteans who was sent to the surface to protect uh, Earth from monstrous threats, uh, and the one uh, in this film in particular would have been a shape-shifting alien creature known as the Griffin, <laughs> and which is also interesting. Speaking of Gamera, because that is a basically the conceit of the Gamera lore is that uh, spoiler alerts for Gamera, but Gamera is a creature made by ancient civilizations, um, primarily Atlanteans, uh, as a way to protect it from other earthly evil mm-hmm. forces. Uh, By the way, I just want to go back. I said John DeBont was a good director, and I looked at his filmography, and I'm like, well, he made kind of two good movies, so... Uh, he's still a good director yeah. for two movies. But he did make uh, Tomb Raider the Cradle, Cradle of Life. Mm. I never even finished that movie. Mm. Um, so, uh, Which has Daniel Craig, I think. Or is that the first one that has Daniel Craig? I think it's the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah. Never, never mind. So, um, also a side note, because uh, this is going back to when we're talking about the usage of monsters uh, mm-hmm. that they could have, because uh, Toho gave the ability, like, you're open to use some of these monsters, but there was also the case where if you they did want to use the monsters, they would still have to license them separately, which yeah. is a famous thing about the Toho monsters in all these American movies, is that Toho individually loans out monsters. Yeah. Uh, you're, you, don't, they're open. You, don't, you don't get the whole kit and kaboom. 
brutal. Yeah, you need to like like you're open to the shop, but you have to come in and rent one each individually. Yeah. Um, so there was actually for a time, uh, Elian Rocio did uh, outline some ideas for this American uh, reboot uh, with King Ghidorah in mind. But when they found out that it was going to be a whole thing that they would have to license out the the monster, they they kind of opted to let, let's just make our own mm-hmm. monster. Um, so. Um, the uh the so the project started moving forward and in pre-production with special effects legend uh Stan Winston who uh is famous for his work in many many films uh, Jurassic Park Aliens Terminator uh in designing both creatures uh several uh pieces of concept art and even models exist for Godzilla and the Griffin uh the Godzilla creature in this version w- would be a lot more akin to the Godzilla that we know and love uh, a little bit more of an American modern design, but essentially kind of like very familiar. Like you would be able to look at it and be like, Oh, it's Godzilla. Yeah. They were much more in favor of going in that direction. Yeah. And then in terms of the design and like the Griffin itself, like was a shape shifting uh, kind of creature. But if you look at the designs, it was kind of like this lion with wings type things. It actually looks pretty cool. Um, so, um, they so they go through this process. They start getting further into pre-production, but unfortunately, uh, Devon's uh, proposed budget for the film was way too high, uh, higher than TriStar ended up uh, like was way more was comfortable with. Uh, and when a compromise could not be met, unfortunately, Devon had to part ways uh, with the production. So. Uh, I think at some point we are going to dive deeper into all the details of that film because it's very well recorded what that movie would have been. And right. it is uh, it, it is a sight to so, not be. So this was what point like what is this like 90, you know, close to like 98 or is it like. So you know. this is like we're kind of getting into like mid 90s. Like so like we're kind of getting into that 95, 96 period. Okay. Um, so with uh, Devon out. Emmerich comes in. Oh boy, here we go. All right, so All right, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna get in uh, what his his so, his history with this is. <laughs> TriStar's next option was the director writer duo of Roland Emmerich and Dean Devlin, mm. who were considered hot commodities after the infamous film Independence Day. Uh, so initially, uh, <laughs> so here we go. Oh, okay, here we go. So they go after him. Independence Day, highly uh, successful. Makes a lot of makes a lot of money. Yeah. It's you know it's because we forget that like Independence Day was kind of in a sense the phenomenon. Like it Independence Day like created the modern day Super Bowl commercial mm-hmm. in terms of like they had that famous commercial with the White House blowing up and it was like the talk of that Super Bowl. The hype for that movie was insane. It yeah. made a lot of money. It was basically a jolt to the nuts of blockbuster filmmaking yes. where it's like everybody's like, wait, you can just blow up shit? Like, <laughs> that's what Independence Day was. Yeah, and it, but, it, but it really put you know Emmerich on the map and it really like it, – I it it seems like that kind of mo- – even closer to like the modern day like, oh, he's the hot director and you know probably approached for a bunch of different things. So, hopping on to this movie. Okay. All right. What initially, Emmerich and Devin and Devlin uh, rejected the offer mm-hmm. uh, to make this movie, and there was actually reports that they may have been approached earlier, but uh, they they were uh, like without bearing the lead. They just had a real distaste for the source material. They didn't get it. They were like, "What is this? This is." They shared the same sentiments that most uh, people did at the at the time. They're they're like, "What? There's there's no movie in this. It's dumb. 
stop wasting our time. And uh, it actually took TriStar relenting full creative control over the project for, oh, to get the two no. to accept. No, no, no. <laughs> so, guys, we are going to be talking a little bit about auteur theory <laughs> oh, my. in this in this movie. Okay. Oh, boy. So Full creative control. So, yeah, and it's actually one of those things where very much, like, the transparency on this project is very, it's very transparent. Like, they, like, every, it's recorded almost unapologetically that TriStar just gave them the movie, do whatever you want with it so we can get this made. And in fact, that Emmerich and Devlin didn't even want to do the movie, didn't like the source material and really said like, as long as we, we'll do it as long as we can do whatever we want. Uh, and uh, their, uh, their distaste for the source materials is notoriously known. Uh, the two were openly dismissive of the original films and wanted nothing to do with the Toho iteration. Um, and Emmerich was more interested in making more of a creature out of nature than some, or an animal out of nature than, as he would quote, some strange creature. <laughs> uh, which Emmerich is a weird guy because he is like, he always says shit like this to this day. Like, have you seen Independence Day Resurgence? Have you seen Independence Day Resurgence? No, I have not. Okay. Actually. I'm just saying, like, if if you even looked briefly at that movie, a movie that in its third act has a giant alien queen the size of one of the ships chasing a bus with a giant laser gun. And this is the guy who says, like, I don't really get superheroes. They're just flying around and it's all silly. Like, I'm like, what? <laughs> What do you like? So he's just he's a, he's an odd dude. Well, he I mean, but you know, superheroes don't destroy things. Yeah. And Roland Emmerich, he destroys things. <laughs> um. So uh, when the two came on, they uh, entirely scrapped Elliot and Rocio's script. Uh. With so em- I can't blame Elliot and Rocio for this one. No. Uh. Because <sighs> actually, they said that while mm. Emmerich had said that there were some interesting things, but he said that the that in that script, it ultimately came down to a third act where just two monsters are going at. It, and that's just not a movie I can make. <laughs> well, Elliot it's Ro- not two tornadoes fighting each other, so I can't. No. I can't. I can't Elliot do and Rocio, you you've escaped my wrath this time. <laughs> um. So, uh, so the two rewrote the story, and the only thing that they maintained uh, from the Godzilla, because Devlin has actually said the one thing that he said that they felt had they had to keep true was the radioactive origins. And that was, like, he said, like, I mean, like, that is, like, what Godzilla is all about. Like, we hate everything else about him, but, like, there's something about that it's a giant mutated lizard that we love. Uh, so that was really the only thing that they kept. Um, and that's just from the Godzilla mythos. That wasn't even in the uh, Elliot and Rocio script. Yeah. Um, so in addition to the script, uh, Emmerich ordered a complete redesign of Godzilla, moving away from Stan Winston's more classic look to something Emmerich deemed a little bit more... And uh, I, I say this with dread, quote unquote, realistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he brought on production designer and special effects artist uh, Patrick Tatopoulos, uh, who is a name that uh, we need to remember. <laughs> yes. uh, it's Tatopoulos. <laughs> Tatopoulos. Uh, who had collaborated with him on the creating the Independence Day aliens uh, to do uh, uh, the redesigns. Uh, Emmerich's main direction was that. In this new iteration, he wanted the creature's main ability is that it moved incredibly fast in contrast with the slow-moving behemoth of Toho's design. And I think this is a good time to talk about our Godzilla, or quote-unquote Godzilla in this film, uh, in which, uh, you know what, uh, he's 
really uh, Godzilla in name only. And mm. I say that is because that is the quote-unquote official name that fans have given this Godzilla. Uh, they lovingly or not so lovingly call it Gino, meaning Godzilla in name only. Um, Nick, uh, as you always do, you describe our monsters. How would you, uh, how would you describe this Godzilla? It's not Godzilla. <laughs> Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, and I think, it's just, it's, okay, but like, okay, but the creature design itself, yeah. like, like, what what are we thinking about it? Because I actually think like, and especially like, I've, I've seen like concept art of it and like the, the creature design itself is not the worst. No. It's just not Godzilla. It's not Godzilla. I mean, yeah. that's what it is. Uh, it's uh, the easiest way to describe it. It's a giant lizard because the origins of this Godzilla is that it's a mutated iguana. Yeah. Um, and, um, it was designed to have a more dinosaur, uh, look, uh, to him. And it's basically, it's basically like a giant T-Rex type of deal. Yeah. Kind of like a giant kind of like long moving, uh, lizard, uh, big legs, making it, uh, more agile, more kind Mm -hmm. of like snake like in, in, in some ways. Um, so, uh, so the few things about uh, designing the creature is that the creature was given a color scheme that would match an urban environment that would uh, feed into the plot of this film. And actually, there was rumors that at some point that it had a camouflage chameleon ability, but that was ultimately scrapped. Um, Something I think you will find interesting is the Topless took inspiration uh, for the the head design of Godzilla from Shere Khan from the Jungle Book Hmm. and felt that uh, he loved that he loved the movie as a kid and he always felt Shere Khan was terrifying and just kind of like that broad square uh, big chin look and then he implemented that in the the, the design of Well he uh, does have good taste (laughs) Um, So animatronics and suits were made uh, for use in the film but as we see in the final product are very seldom if at all used uh, primarily uh, achieving the creature with CGI and there was also talk of mocapping the creature as well, but that moved more in the direction of giving Godzilla more human look and kind of movement that Emmerich was trying to stay away from. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so with all this said, Emmerich and Totopolis still were required to get final approval from Toho. Uh, because like like Toho's been kind of like open uh, to this idea and very supportive along the way, but there was still like they still had to get the final go ahead that like all right like they need to quote unquote approve of everything. Uh, so and uh, so uh, Totopolis created a four concept art pieces and a two foot tall maquette for a meeting uh, with Toho. And uh, upon the unveiling uh, of it to Toho's top brass, um, there is this story that Emmerich tells where when they unveiled the design that there was just a silence in the room. <laughs> he said, uh, quote him, quoting him, they were speechless, they stared at it, and there was a silence for a couple minutes. And then they said, could you come, could, uh, or is like, could we meet tomorrow? <laughs> and at this point, Emmerich was, pretty much certain that the movie was dead at this point mm-hmm. like he he's like he could feel it that they weren't feeling it and, and, and quite frankly uh many most of toho's producers were not feeling it like yeah. they in I, general I mean, I mean, it's not shocking in general they they were kind of very dubious about it they they kind of went in the direction of what you were saying like this really isn't godzilla uh but they wanted to be respectful of their own production of the film and they were saying like well 
it's kind of too late to like make some major alterations to this thing. And um, uh, Shogo Tomiya, who was a producer of the Heisei films at the time, um, went to a, a Godzilla producer and creator, uh, Tamayuki Tanaka, who was unfortunately uh, very ill and bedridden, so couldn't you know attend these meetings yeah. themselves. Uh, and then so he goes there, and then when explaining it, uh, what it looked like, uh, uh, Tomiyama said, it's like a Godzilla Carl Lewis with long legs, and it's going to run real fast. <laughs> um, what? I mean, that's... What a description. So, uh, despite the hesitation on Toho uh, and um, from some outright disapproval, Toho wanted to respect the production, and they gave the green light to uh, TriStar nonetheless. Oh, it's like, just make like this hopefully, guy. this turns out, you yeah. know, somewhat okay for us. Godzilla 1998 is uh, into production. They're they're ma- they're making the film. They shoot uh, a lot of it in um, uh, New York. Some of it in Los Angeles. Some of it in Hawaii. Um, but, uh, and the production, there, there's no real big production stories themselves. There's a little fun stories, but maybe some we'll get to in the actual talking of the movie. Uh, that the one thing I do want to mention before we get into the movie is the infamous marketing campaign okay. for this movie, because this was one, and I actually remember this marketing campaign too. Um, one of the things about the marketing is that Emmerich insisted that Godzilla could not be shown in full in any of the marketing. Mm. That you can see pieces of him, but they didn't want to give like this is what Godzilla looks like. Uh, in, like in sort the of, film. they want the big reveal in the movie, exactly. Kind of yeah. like that pick, like the you know, and the studio. I can I can see that you know because. Obviously, they did some of that stuff in, you know, they showed some of the big stuff in Independence Day, but I also feel like that there's a part of that movie's legacy where just like seeing it in theaters and like kind of the spectacular nature of yeah. it. It's and also, I, I, yeah, it's also not because what it ended up, what the marketing ended up being, I actually think is, is, is not terrible, uh, but they didn't, they just didn't want, and the studio was hesitant about doing that, but they're like, well, I get, we gave this guy full creative control, so what are we going to do? Including on the marketing. Um, so uh, the studio, the, the one funny story is that the studio initially gave fake images to the, com- to companies that they licensed merchandising out to uh, because they wanted to test uh, who would leak stuff uh before they gave them mm-hmm. like the actual real stuff uh and this is how fruit of the loom lost their license because the uh, underwear guy yeah <laughs> because they uh they gave out uh, these fake images and, and uh, apparently they got leaked from fruit of the loom so they're like you don't get your licensing anymore <laughs> well no no more godzilla underwear for us <laughs> Um, so the film actually spawned an infamous marketing campaign despite all of this. Uh, the most uh, famous uh, trailer was actually the teaser that consisted of an ultimately cut scene from the film, which was kind of like um, ironic because uh, uh, it was like a it was a special effect scene that was filmed and then had to be cut. That gets into some of the budget things we'll talk about in this movie later on. Uh, but it involved like a field trip taking place in a museum, and they were being like, "Here's the mighty Tyrannosaurus Rex, and look how look how massive and large it is." And then like then there's a bunch of rumbles, and then the Godzilla foot just comes right through the floor and steps on the the T Rex, mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit of a dig at like, ah, this this ain't no Jurassic Park. We got an even bigger dinosaur. And this uh, spawns the uh, tagline "Size Matters," mm. and uh, they then the marketing campaign. They had a physical marketing campaign of like billboards and such. Uh, some of my favorite ones would be like 
um, it would be like on the side of a bus and it would be like his foot is bigger than this the size of this bus <laughs> or is like his head is bigger than this billboard like I, that's kind of fun yeah. like I, I, I do think that's fun um, but of course uh, and I don't know if you remember this but of course there was the famous Taco Bell ad for this for this is this film. the one where the, the gif comes from uh no 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 it's not that but it's okay. this one where uh the chihuahua the taco, oh, the taco bell chihuahua, chihuahua okay. is uh trying to trap godzilla with a taco and like you know the whole the uh, stick holding up the box yes. with the treat under it and then he would be like here lizard 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 <laughs> it was like a famous like what is this <laughs> look it up it's it's on it's on it's on well taco YouTube. bell didn't leak anything so we we know that they're safe to to really promote godzilla so real quick before we we get into the movie uh, because that is basically the uh, very telling history of like how how this film got made is that it it, it spawned from very passionate niche uh, wishes of, of getting the movie made and then kind of ended up in the hands of a guy who didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to say he didn't give a shit about it. He wanted to make the movie he wanted to make. I don't want to say like yeah. he phoned in the movie. In fact, like he probably didn't because he was given what he wanted to yeah. do on it. But Give me it, one or one. Yeah, but it, it, it is very interesting and it opens up the conversation of how these movies especially are made now. And I want to get your take on this before we get into the movie. What is your – because this was the first instance – there's two instances of this happening, but this is one of the first instances that I remember of openly the creator of a movie was very disparaging of the source material. And like, I'm just going to do whatever I want. Yeah. What is your take on this? Because there is a lot of like good arguments to be had of like how much of a quote unquote fan of the source material do you need to be to make I a don't movie? No, if you need to be a fan, but you need to have respect. You mm-hmm. need to be like, well, there's a reason people enjoy this. There's a reason that, like, this is my thing about like, and then, and this is adaptation in general. Sure, yeah, like no, I, I want to hear I it. I think you can shift things about the movie, mm-hmm. but you need to respect what that original story is saying and mm-hmm. what that original story brings to the table. Yeah, because um, I feel this way like a bunch, a bunch about a bunch of like Disney animated movies, mm-hmm. especially those like classic ones, but also like kind of the, some of the modern adaptations, mm-hmm. like stuff like Jungle Book and like. Like hundred one Dalmatians and even like Pinocchio and mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Where and Alice and Alice especially is a really great example because Alice in Wonderland, the Disney film, is a is a movie. It is it, very different in in so this real quick, just a little tangent. In a lot of the original design work for the Disney Island Wonderland, they tried to do like straight up like the Lewis and Carroll book, mm-hmm. like the designs from the illustrations and kind of the tone, a little bit of the kind of darker tone, but it never really worked. It never really became like the movie. And then Mary Blair came on and did the more colorful uh, concept art, and the movie kind of went from there. Mm. Now, the story of Alice in both films is about a girl who doesn't want to grow up but slowly le- realizes that she can't live in this childlike world forever. Mm-hmm. Something similar that happens in you know Peter Pan, but just kind of like she wants to be you know in this world where up is down and left is right, and then she eventually realizes that a world with no rules is not a world. Mm. It's, it's chaos. And the move, both movie and the book have that same structure. It's just they are different stories. And they're both great and they're both entertaining. Mm-hmm. And there's still that respect of what that story is trying to tell. Even the Jan de Bont version that we kind of mentioned, even if the origin isn't like, okay, you know, the origin isn't the same and it kind of has a different little bit of feeling, 
the fact that there's like a third monster monster fight and that kind of t- that monster design of the shift shifting creature is something I could see Toho doing mm-hmm. and kind of that respect of wanting that kind of big budget to make it look good. There's that level of respect. There's that, well, still that level of like, well, we still respect what those original movies are and we're going to try to do it just for a different audience. Well, I mean, the one thing I will say about this whole argument about this is that there is this there there is a thought that is valid that the one thing that would be that you don't necessarily need to bring the most avid of fan on to the movie is that you do get maybe like a different kind of perspective uh, yeah. on on the movie. Yes, like remember one of like bringing up one of my favorites. James Gunn has been on record by saying that he did not get why you would want to make Guardians of the Galaxy. When he met with Marvel, he was just like, they get like, oh, well, we have that on the on the plate. Like, it's like, would that be something you'd be interested in? And he's just like, eh, no, I'd rather do Hit Monkey. And then <laughs> he said on the way home, he's like, well, wait a minute. But like, I if I think about it this way, and then he fell in love with it immediately. And that came, and I would say the more unique version of that movie came from him maybe not being so close to the source material, but oh, yeah. seeing the potential of what like, made I, it work. I, I've actually said this before, but I, I wanted for a long time to make the Guardians movie because mm-hmm. I was a big fan of it in high school. But my version of that movie would have just been Annihilation Conquest just mm-hmm. in a movie form. And realizing, watching the gun version made me realize, well, that necessarily didn't work. And that's when I really actually started to kind of, like Marvel in general, but especially Guardians, really shifted my opinion on how to do adaptation. Right. Because now I'm a lot more free of just like, well, I'm going to take this material and tell the story I want to tell. And for an example that really went off the rails, an example that I... 10% 10% defend, but 90% admit that it went off the rails is Michael Bay's Transformers franchise. Because that was the second time that I heard about a guy having no interest in the source material. Mm-hmm. That he was very much like he just didn't see, like it just wasn't for him. It was too kiddie and stuff. And I would, I always there are argue. There some interesting parallels between the two, I think. Yeah, well, I would argue that at least that there is an interesting voice to that first one where it's kind of more of this like semi like grown like uh, adult alien invasion movie that feeds into the robots in disguise thing and the Decepticons are a little scary and the Autobots are really heroic but that caught up to like that the, the, rest of the, the rest of that franchise caught up well to... because it, it it became less and less transformers as it went on and more of just michael bay's weird alien movies um so there again like with this all there's no like set in stone formula for how no. it works sometimes it works out sometimes it, it, it doesn't and um and sometimes you even get an example of somebody not being a fan of the source material, and then you get a Starship Troopers like movie, which is like comes from Verhoeven having a distaste for the the book itself and making it more of, of a, a of a satire. Yeah. So it can definitely work, but I do think that there is something to I mean, be said. Peter Horner is not a good example because like Total Recall is a very different movie than the original like stories it's based on. Right. So there. It's harder, though, because those are – not to disparage those books, but those are, like, you know, those – they're little uh, – I believe they're one-off, like, yeah. books that you, yeah. you can reimagine, and that's, like, the first reboot. We have had, like, an eras of, of Godzilla yes. of, like, what makes this character and, this character, so it's also, a little bit hard to be like, also, all right, well, now we're going to – And also, to be fair, we've also had, like, multiple tones with Godzilla too. Yeah. Which I think, like, even, even dismissing it as silly, like, you can go in and – there's a lot of different things in those movies that you can find like bits and pieces of that you enjoy. Yeah, it, it's just hard because I would I would be open to 
even if you're not the biggest fan of it, like you're just coming into. I mean, like, listen, like I, I still. But we're seeing another parallel. Like, I like J.J. Abrams for a Star Trek movie, and mm-hmm. he's and not not that he's ever said he dislikes Star Trek, but he's always admitted that he was never like the biggest Star Trek guy. Admittedly, but you can draw another parallel that that may have caught up with him in the second one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it may not be as fresh, uh, but that kind of goes into the whole other conversation of like maybe that initial take is better the first time around, but then it's, you start showing your cards a little bit the second time around. But I do think there's something to be said, like if you're just going to adamantly openly be like, yeah, I know, screw that stuff. Yeah, for a well-established brand. Yeah, not yeah, the best, no. I, I don't think. But, I mean, I think it's time for us, Nick, to finally talk about uh, how uh, this um, this uh, movie turned out with, uh, as we would say, Godzilla, but actually, what's his name? It's Gojira, you moron. <laughs> what about the traces of radiation? The radiation isn't an anomaly. It's the clue. This animal is much too big to be some kind of lost dinosaur. Well, don't tell me what it is and tell me what the hell it is. Well, what do we know? Uh, it was first sighted off of the French Polynesian Pacific, right? That area has been exposed to dozens of nuclear tests over the past 30 years. Uh Uh-huh, hence the radiation. No, more than that. I believe that this is a mutated aberration. We're looking at a completely incipient creature. The dawn of a new species, the first of its kind. And we're back. Uh, you are so excited to talk about this one. I've been really excited to see this. You, you know what? I may be the opposite. I think I'm way more excited talking about the, the pre and post release than the actual movie itself. Because I think it sounds like you have a much bigger opinion about this movie. Um. Than, than I do. So I'm just going to get my thoughts of the yeah. movie. Because here's the thing. I actually have quite a history with this movie. Mm-hmm. This was... I, I saw this movie in theaters. I remember uh, I saw it with my dad. He picked me up after school. We went to go see it. Because it's like, yeah, Godzilla. I, like, I had some of the toys. Uh, I was all in on the giant lizard uh, just as a concept. Which ultimately fed into being into Godzilla long term. This movie is whatever to mm-hmm. me. I have no real strong opinion about this movie. Um, I think that it has – I kind of have a little bit more of an opinion just because I've become such a Godzilla fan. And it really comes down to like this ain't Godzilla. And it's so hard, especially after doing this podcast where we've watched so many Godzilla films. And it just becomes a case where it's just so far removed from what the franchise has been that I I almost – like I can't even consider it a Godzilla film. Uh, like, and it, it's just, like, the creature design, the the lack of, like, anything that has made those Godzillas, the Godzilla films, and I kind of fall into the category that many fans and critics have, have come into, where if you kind of view this as, and I'm not being apologetic of it, but if it's, as it's kind of, like, just giant monster movie in New York, like, it's fine. It, it's whatever. Yeah. Like, if this wasn't attached to Godzilla, you would have none of those preconceived notions of what it should be, um, which I know you could kind of say that about any reboot, but, like, it's very much the case here. Mm-hmm. Like, and and actually, this movie has a much better um, connection to the um, film uh, The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, 
which was a film about a giant lizard who comes up from the depths and basically rampages around New York. Like, that's what this movie is. So it's, like, kind of weird that it's more of a remake of that movie than Godzilla proper. And a lot of people have said, like, well, just think of it as a a remake to that one. It's just called uh, Godzilla. Like, they should have called this one Gigantus, uh, but they can't call it the Fire Monster. I wouldn't even call it fine because it's like, I don't even think it's fine. It's just whatever. It doesn't offend my sensibilities. It's a movie. movie. Yeah, it's a movie. Like, I actually, there's Toho films I actually dislike more than this. Yeah. uh, But that is kind of my opinion on it. It, It's whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I I was very fascinated to see this. Because... Did oh. you hold on real quick? Did you find that this movie is definitely like a time capsule of a movie? Yes, <laughs> which we're going to talk about. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah. So, I was very fascinated to see this movie because I'd never seen it before, and that oh, I found hard to believe that you had never. I've seen never it. seen it. I, I I think I had seen you know I'd seen probably bits and pieces maybe you know maybe it was like flipping through it was on TNT or something I I don't know. FX FX has the movies. So over the years. I've become a rather big fan of So Bad They're Good movies. Mm-hmm. Like, I unapologetically enjoy watching Batman and Robin. I've been genuinely enjoyed, like, watching Trainwreck sometimes. Yeah. Like, I mean, also, but look look at the movies we're watching, too. It's like, yeah. it's not like, we're not sitting up here. Like, that's why I don't want to be like, every Toho Godzilla movie, like, this one doesn't even hold a cat. Like, no, there's some trash Listen, Toho Okay, movies. well, like, there's no way this movie is worse than all monsters. Yeah. <laughs> that, well, that is straight up. What's, but what really, I mean, on that, so what, it's, it's, it's stuck with me in terms of there are really some elements that I find very fascinating and, and, and kind of enjoyable in that so bad it's good way. Mm-hmm. It's not definitely on a level like Batman and Robin is the peak of so bad it's good for me. Yeah, like, it's on one of those. It's not on that level. It's not on a Jaws four level either. Right. Um, I found that there was nothing like outlandishly not, dumb. No, like no. it's a dumb movie, but there's not like but, oh my god. What really fascinated about me about this movie is how much it's not a Godzilla movie. Like that's really like when you watch it. You know what I kept I'd thinking agree. during this movie? Yeah. This movie, obviously, like if you just made another monster. It would have been like, yeah, it would have been its own fine thing. But this movie, to me, really fit a lot more if, like, you did, like, a really weird... Like, if you made a really weird movie based on the ending of Jurassic Park 2. Like, it had more of the tone and kind of just the look. It just felt like more like... It felt like if you made a movie where the Indominus Rex from Jurassic World, instead of, like, terrorizing the Jurassic World thing, they, like... Like, the story would have been, oh, we made this, you know, we, we created this new monster, this dinosaur, yeah. and it escapes, and it, like, attacks New York. Yeah. That's what it felt like more to me, especially because, like, there's, like, the thing, which in the third act, and where we talk about, where, like, a lot of that stuff just felt like stuff like raptor stuff you'd see in a Jurassic Park movie. Yeah, it just felt yeah, like well, that's it really, the dead giveaway. Yeah, it, yeah. Just, it just felt like you this would fit more as a Jurassic Park sequel than it would a Godzilla sequel. Mm-hmm. Now... And we'll get into this. I don't think the setup to this movie is completely terrible. Like, I think if, like, the first... If you did, like, the first, you know, everything before Godzilla really appears, mm-hmm. and, like, then it was, like, a more traditional Godzilla movie, I think this would have been more fine in that fine realm. It's just the fact that once you get to the Godzilla stuff, it's so removed from anything related to Godzilla that it's just, like... You can't believe like how how, how little, little yeah, how no. little they have of a actual Godzilla. Do we want to get into the atomic breath? So 
this Godzilla does not have an atomic. No, breath. I mean that's uh, one of the main things. It's like even if you had that that connection, but no. Well, there's two things. There's one of the things was that it does. It's not impervious to human uh, like weaponry. Yeah, which. I don't mind as much, but again, this kind of comes from like I just have to remove it from being a Godzilla film because, like, as a creature, that's fine. It's like kind of like this fast, agile creature that the the weapons can't lock onto, and then it uses its agility and its like stealth tactics to. Even though it's the stealth tactics are one of those things like that is so dumb that this creature is as stealthy as it is in this city. Like that's a so bad it's good type of deal for me. Uh, But so that I didn't mind as much, but the, so the lack of atomic breath was one of these things where it came out very early in production to the public that this Godzilla would not have an atomic breath. And as such, like the fans of course were like, wait, what? Like that, like everybody knows, like that's what he does. Like he either, like you either think he breathes fire, he breathes an atomic breath. Either way, he shoots a beam out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. Once they knew that, there was kind of like this push where it's like, well, can we fix this in a certain way? And uh, they find the let's have our cake and eat it too thing, where Godzilla has such a strong roar that he roars and it like sends all it explodes everything around him oh. like it does like the cars yeah. like the, which even as a kid when that happened i was like that's bullshit yeah. because even like as a kid i'm like that's what godzilla does and there and i was trying to like wrap it around my brain like i was trying to give him credit like yeah. you know that was back during the time when you didn't want to admit a movie was bad no, we, we've talked about this that- like rem- i remember like the i remember like feeling like after you saw after i saw like catwoman i was like oh this is a weird feeling i have and then like five years later you realize like oh that's because i didn't like that movie that's it, i've told this story before <laughs> on i think one of your over previous podcasts but that's that was my reaction to the original uh, fantastic four movie yeah <laughs> I, I saw it in a drive-in theater and I watched it. And I remember going home, and I was like, "Hmm, I don't, I don't know what this is." Yeah, like, what, what is this feeling I is, have? What is this feeling I have? And then realizing, like, oh, that's the first time I really thought like a movie was like bad. Yeah, yeah. And so, but I did have that thing where you, you want to give it more credit than it deserves, and you're like, "Oh, I guess it can breathe fire." They just filmed it at a weird angle. <laughs> like, I. <laughs> but that, but that's uh, such a totally like we want to make it real. Which is, like, ridiculous because you're making a giant monster movie. Like, it just seems to me that, like, there's... Because there's way, like, even going to 2014 Godzilla, like, that movie has, like, realism in the way that it presents things. But also doesn't share, you know, doesn't shy away from the fact that they're making a giant monster movie. Doherty talks about this and making, like, the the King of the Monsters coming out was that there is a sense of they want to add a real a realism to it. The key is to add a realism to it but maintain the fantasy yes. because the two aren't mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Like, because you're still talking about, like, giant monsters that breathe electricity or fire and are giant, like, magical, like, insects. The origin, the, this movie starts out with the, like, there there's these the French nuclear testings have mutated uh, an iguana egg, essentially. You can see it in the opening credits. Yeah. That that's essentially what happens. And then it creates this new Godzilla. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's kind of the premise is, yeah. of what but it like, is. But like I said, so there's like the beginning part of this movie. And just like, I want to go with some specific, but in general broad strokes, you do you see the testing. Then, it, like, a ship is attacked, like a Japanese, or, like, you know... It's ship, like a, a fishing vessel a fishing or something, A fishing vessel yeah. ship is attacked, and then they bring out uh, Matthew Broderick. Yeah. Uh, 
and like he's like testing nuclear Name, named uh what's his name nick uh tomopolis it's tatopolis <laughs> Which is the running gag in the movie that's dropped halfway through. <laughs> Which a lot of like, things are that. That's a and, lot of things. And I think we should mention that, of course, uh, Matthew Broderick, Nick Tatopoulos, is named after the creature designer, mm-hmm. uh, the Tatopoulos, who, yeah. who made Yeah, but, the but then it's like he's pulled out. They, he's like investigating the thing on the island. And they discover this giant footprint and these attacks. And and then all of a sudden, like, the movie monster, you know, attacks. Okay. But, but, but my thing is, like, in terms of, like, and like a '90s American adaptation, yeah. All of that in a row, and then there's like this stuff with the reporter, which again we're gonna do. But all that stuff in a row again is not like a terrible setup. It's like it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Like I said, like all of that, like you could see, like I could see that leading into okay, and then it's like the actual Godzilla appears, and then it's more like okay, well, you know, this is Escape from New York type of deal. But it's really like, it's just like when you really consider that how much this movie doesn't have to do anything with Godzilla. It's just like, it's just like, it really just boggles the mind. Yeah. It just boggles the mind. Um, I want, so speaking of Matthew Broderick, um, because he seems like a very un, uh, like unusual choice for a movie like this. And I think this is where I want to talk more about like the directing of the film and the yeah. film that it ended up being. Cause it is quite a time capsule of a movie, especially considering that this is fresh off of independence day for Emmerich and Devlin, mm-hmm. um, where, so there are elements of like the casting, especially with Broderick. Cause I think that one of the things that Emmerich had brought over from, his uh his time on on um excuse me on um independence day was that i think that the casting of broderick was kind of like this unlikely hero type guy that they're kind of casting against type on this yeah which makes sense because like jeff goldblum is like one of the heroes in independence day so there's a level of that but i want to talk about like the movie and the tone of the movie it's itself yeah uh because it's a very strange type of movie. So recently, um, I have uh, delved into uh, a lot of uh, YouTube uh, film uh, analysis and uh, and video essays, and I stumbled across uh, YouTuber uh, Lindsay Ellis's video of uh, War of the Worlds versus uh, Independence Day. Yeah. Um, very good video. Everybody should go see it. And L- I mean, Liz- I, I don't Lindsay need. To, yeah. Is very smart. Yeah. I, like, I she's, also. She's, I mean, I've been following her for a long time, and she's a very very smart film person um but uh she had mentioned that in that movie that in independence day that uh versus war of the world is that independence day and emmerich's era of movies it definitely shows a pre 9 11 disaster type movie mm-hmm. where there is a more fun having jaunty feeling to it being a giant disaster where of course like the stakes have never been higher of course yeah but there's always like this sense of like there there's still there there's not the impending dread of that especially like if you look at like there's this earnestness and this darkness to maybe like the 2014 Godzilla where as this one, like there is a little bit of like, th- like they still have fun with like, Oh my God, Hank Azaria, Azaria almost got stepped on, even though like probably a bunch of people just died. Yeah. <laughs> so there, there is a level of that. And there's also like, it, and that kind of goes into the score of the movie. Like at times there's this like really like kind of fun Amblin type score yeah, with like, like the chimes. It's a David, and the, it's a David Arnold score. Yeah. And it, and it's just, and it's, it's a very fascinating, like I said, capsule out of like that era uh, of a film of or like disaster film. And yeah. it, you can see the parallel between Independence Day and this one is that, and I, but I found in this one that 
it, it's a, it, it came off as unique, but not like like I don't know if it all worked tonally. No. Because it almost like kind of felt like, well, what is the tone of this movie? Yeah. And not in a like, oh, it's confused and all over the place. It's like I can't get a grasp of like what Emmerich is going for thematically or tonally with yeah, this movie. Yeah, it, it is really all over the place in yeah. so many ways. Because like, and that goes back to like, and so I, I mean, go ahead. Because, and I think Devlin has talked about this too. But there's also like a weird lack of reverence for this monster, other than it being like a monster. But there'll be like scenes when it's like look at the ma- the majesty of this monster immediately followed by let's murder it. Yeah. Like, so it's like, but what, like, what's the point? And yeah. I kind of give credit that Emmerich wants to have those moments in the movie. Yeah. So there's the big ultimate like reveal of the monster when Matthew Broderick is like taking the picture of it and it's like coming out, it's making its big debut for the first time. And they definitely, they, like those individual scenes I actually quite like because they present it in this big majestic kind of Amblin like way yeah and then it's followed by like they have to kill it and that's fine but then it gets into like the third act of the movie which we the infamous Godzilla lays eggs in this movie and there's tiny little Godzillas um which I you know hot take I'll just put it out right now is I I think probably like at least like quote-unquote the best part of the movie but I'll get into that but, like, that whole scene, like, there's this big, magical, wondrous tone being played of, like, these creatures are so majestic and, like, oh, my God, look we, at nature take place. We, 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 we've seen this new species come to life. Yeah. We have to destroy it. Yeah. <laughs> like, in the same sentence. I'm like, what? <laughs> and that, that's why I, like, I didn't, I couldn't quite get a grasp at what this guy is ultimately going yeah. for. And they even have the moment when, oh, isn't it sad that, like, Godzilla died? And then, like, I, I guess? <laughs> like, you know, at the end when they yeah. finally kill him, like, there's this, like, oh, we had to kill this this thing. And then it's like, and I get what he's going for. I think he's trying to you know ad- ad- admirably give that you know give like throw a bone to that like well you know we should feel a little bit sad it's just a monster just trying to survive but it's so surrounded by any lack of because even like uh Matthew Broderick's character is like advocating that this thing needs to get killed yeah. so it's not like there's a voice for the monster yeah so it- it's just very lacking in many key elements yeah. and I do think like I, well, something I gotta mention before but something related to that in terms of its tone and its themes I think especially comparing it to to Independence Day, is that the one real issue with this movie in terms of how it tries to present everything is that you really don't have... There's the lack of characterization with all these characters that... Like, in Independence Day, like, you have Jeff Goldblum and, like, Will Smith and uh, Bill... Bill Bill, Pullman. Bill Pullman, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Even if, like, you know, it's not necessarily all of them have arcs or they go through all these changes, but they they all have these personalities and they all have, you know, they're a really clear point of view that really brings the movie together, especially when they're kind of, they're all kind of headed to the third act. Like, Mm -hmm. you have Bill Pullman gives his speech and Will Smith is, like, dragging this alien through the desert and, you know, Jeff Goldblum's trying to save his dad and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing Jeff Goldblum things. Whereas in this movie, it's like, like, when you look at Matthew Broderick, like, what is... What is he? Like, what is he all about? He's like, the worm guy. Yeah. yeah. Like, I give it, that's basically, like, he's, when he, like, Matthew Broderick steps through this movie just basically being, like, yeah, like, just, this the nature guy who is just, like, telling you, like, oh, he's pregnant. Oh, there, you know, there are other things about that, but it's just basically, that's, like, the hunt of the whole movie. You don't really have these characters that can anchor just this kind of 
monster plot driven movie. Yeah. Like it is very much like everything about it is just completely surface level. Um, and, and kind of really going through the motions to try to establishing these characters. Like, so at one point, like, so we get introduced to Audrey, who yeah. is Which an aspiring is the one, reporter. You know, as the one thing about this movie that does probably unintentionally connect to Godzilla is that those Godzilla movies have lots of reporters. Yeah. yeah. And the main, one of the main characters is a reporter. This, in this movie. allegedly, and I, and I don't want to get into the gossip of it too much, but this is like one of those instances where a movie probably killed somebody's career because it's like she was like not in anything really mm -hmm. after that. I mean, she, she had work, but yeah. it was like, it was one of, yeah, it, was it was not a launching off point for her, for, for, for uh, this actress. Uh, but, Jean Reno and Hank Azaria are like the only distinct characters in yes. the movie and oh, have I, any yeah. sort I, of memorable like I'm, kind of presence. I genuinely enjoy Hank Azaria in this movie. Yeah, no, and, and, and Hank Azaria is one of those people. Before we get to um, our reporter, uh, Hank Azaria is one of those people that like obviously. There's a number of Simpsons actors in this movie. Yeah, actually, uh, uh, there's there's three. Uh, Hank oh, three. Azaria, uh, Harry. Uh, Harry Shear, uh, Shear, and uh, Nancy Cartwright is uh, also in the movie at some point. I think she plays like a secretary. Oh, yeah. okay, no, yeah, she's like the she's like the guy for Harry Shear. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, that that's actually I now I can imagine. Yeah, all, all all Simpsons voice actors. Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. but uh, Hank Azaria is one of those people that like when you see him in like I love hearing him talk mm -hmm. like just in interviews. He's a really funny guy, and like the little bits and pieces of like film that he's done and mm -hmm. like like live action stuff i've like always really enjoyed even if i haven't like seen the whole like enjoy the whole movie it's always not i think hank is one of those people like it's really nice to see him in like other things mm -hmm. and i really do enjoy his character because he is he is one of the few characters in this movie that just feels like he's more real he has kind of a yeah. depth to him yeah animal like is, a, is yeah. the character's name he's a, uh, he's a cameraman for the for the yeah. uh, news station he has a really funny mo i mean i think all of his moments like he's really pretty funny and he's actually quite likable in the movie no, too. that's but that's what i say yeah. like he, he he creates a little thing for me just brings a performance that makes him like you know you enjoy seeing him work yeah. you so he has a really funny moment where he picks up the camera uh to like film godzilla like earlier on in the movie and then he's like can't get like the the tape closed and yeah. he's like gah, 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 and then just gingerly presses the <laughs> tape down and it goes in that that was that's really mm -hmm. funny uh but he's really good um i like sean reno in, in the movie i mean it's a little one note but it, it's kind of fun like you can tell like he is one of those actors that is like kind of like like knows knows like the, the type of movie knows the type of movie he's in, and it's just like nobody in this movie, even when they try to, oh, here's my moment, it never really feels like they're having a moment. It really just feels that's like true. surface level. We just need characters in this movie. Yeah, well, you don't care. I mean, no. that's the thing. You like, just you, don't care. You don't care that Audrey is wants to be a reporter. Wants to be a reporter, which. Then she kind of is because she gets the scoop of the century, but then she's like, but I don't really need, like, any approval for it. And then she, like, quits, like, being a reporter. Well, and because, like, well, she's having an abusive, abusive relationship with her boss. Yeah. And her whole thing is, like, is at the beginning of the movie, you know, Henry Shear is, like, the asshole yeah. um, reporter guy. He's like, oh, I'll give you a story if you have dinner with me. Yeah. Like, he's, like, one yeah, of that, those that guy guys. Said, but she's like, well, you know, it's the job of a lifetime, and I really want to keep it. And then it's, like, it realizing, like, I don't want to work for a creep like you. Yeah. But, like, she's gone through this whole movie. And, like, yes, yeah, she has done some very questionable. Well, okay, so she has, like, this quote-unquote thing where, like, all of her friends are telling her, you need to be more assertive and yes. you need to be cutthroat. Like, you're too nice H for this Hank job. Hank Azaria's wife and being, like, the most, like, New York wife yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. But I, I 
liked her. I thought that they're, they're back and but, forth. But no, but that's what made kind of Hank Azaria a lot more fun. Oh my god, that that was really like a time capsule in a bottle because like she like just dropped calling him a retard and yeah. like other like kind of like Italian slurs all the time. Like and, and not like like in like kind of like has as a wife would, but it's just funny. Like you would never hear that in a no. movie uh, today. <laughs> but like. The thing about her, though, and this is where just like the script is just not it is just not working because they do that thing where, all right, now she she steals like a press badge so she can get like so she can get like behind uh, like the the lines to like, you know, question Nick uh, about like what's going on. And uh, then they have their moment where they're reconvening and he's like, you know what? Yeah, you kind of just ran away after I asked you to marry and we didn't never talk. So I'm kind of so bummed out about that. She manipulates him to apologize, like kind of apologize. Yeah, she manipulates. That's a good point. She manipulates him to apologize and then steals all the evidence, publishes it, and like mentions him by name or like gives the information by name, which like the movie's kind of doesn't isn't clear whether she approved of that or not. But it's like also like, what are you dumb? Yeah, like it's like. Like that's terrible. Like you, you must have known he was gonna get fired for that. And then she pulls the like, well, but you have to understand, I had to do what I had to do. I'm like, no. So like, that's the kind of thing where it's like they kind of, which is fine if they want to give her like that little arc. That's okay. But then it's just written in a way that's not engaging, not yeah. likable. But this just also reminds me of another like why Hank Azaria is so likable because she's really, she is genuinely like, they like, they present her as upset about the whole situation. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And then like yeah. Hank comes in like. When like everything's happening and he's like, listen, you, you know, we, we, I know we said this, you're going to be okay. I'm going to still be with you. You know, we're, we're going to get through this together. Listen, do you want to fix this? Cause I have a way to fix this. Right. Yeah. But like, no, there's, there's, there's still stuff I need to talk but about. But there, one, one credit I will give this movie is that it is interesting that they kind of give it more of a mystery kind of science fiction tone where they have to kind of figure out what's going on. And yeah. I think that is where, to be fair, the lack of seeing Godzilla all the time in this movie plays to it. Because I do, I did like, and I think they were successful in creating this atmosphere where it's it's on this island somewhere. We can't find it, even though that's kind of absurd. Like, they even call that out in the movie at one point. It's like... How do you lose a giant lizard? Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, they call that out and they never quite explain that. Like, like in terms of like, in terms of on Manhattan, they're, they're kind of like, oh, well, there's all these big buildings, so he's hiding in a giant building. But you also feel like, well, you probably could find like the the road of destruction like that he exactly, paved along yeah. the way it's not like he can just like sneak into a building there there's a but it, i guess that could also be like kind of one of those things where if they did went that could be like the chameleon thing where it was like it was in the script for a while and then it got taken out but they still needed him to be like hiding so right like, oh yeah. like you know he's just in these big buildings like that's the part where it kind of gets like so dumb that it's like kind of like yeah i'll just go with it yeah. but i did i did like that aspect of the film and that it ultimately coalesces into the um into the egg subplot mm-hmm. uh because in this movie they find out that godzilla is reproducing uh yes, asexually cause, cause, uh, which leads to one of your favorite lines in the movie was when it was oh yeah where she's like well, we're like it's um it's the reporter it's audrey yeah and he's like well wait so there's she's like oh like matthew broderick's like oh it's pregnant after he just buys like all the pregnancy tests <laughs> all these like actual pregnancy tests in like this one that's also what kind of got me where it's like listen you're this giant monster is attacking New York, but he can still kind of watch his walk in. And the woman's just like, Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Like she's still working there. Like they, cause they, they also do like a big, like, well, 
is the, is that in the? But this no, is where the, like the geography of it right, was that outside of the city. It's outside of the city, but it's yeah. but it's still like the monster's still like around, and it's been established that you can kind of like get you know yeah. maybe they don't know everything, but it's still just really funny that there is this giant monster attack, maybe not happening in your town, but basically essentially happening right next door to you. But that's what I think comes down to what I was saying previously is that there is still like this. Not this dreadful tone right, yeah. that he like he no, but like, he, he Emmerich yeah. wants to have room that you can still kind of have lighter, but like normal. I just really like, like the idea of this woman just being like, listen, like he's she's just walking. I guess this giant lizard attack. I'm just gonna keep going. Guy comes in. Listen, I need all your pregnancies, Hess. Like every single, like all the ones that use this. She and, probably could have charged him more. Yeah, like, given like the circumstances. Circumstances, but yeah. like he didn't even like say like oh, I'm gonna make sure this giant pregnant lizard is present. Anyway, the line was Audrey's like. Like Matthew Broderick's like, oh, he's pregnant, and she's like, what? Like he's pregnant, but like, so there's two of them? Oh no, like there's only one. And she's like, well, how could that be? How could he be pregnant? And then Matthew Broderick basically sciences his way. He's like, well, you know, he reproduces asexually. Means you know, you don't have sex. You know, and then Audrey's like, "Where's the fun in that?" And to me, I was like, <laughs> "To which Nick immediately responded." To which I immediately said, "That was definitely written by a man." <laughs> 100%. You know, it's funny. I was watching uh, the comedy film Evolution last night, and yeah. it has the same exact joke in that because they're like, they reproduce uh, asexually. asexually, and then they're just like, it, it's essentially the same the same yeah. gag. But then basically, yeah. yeah, so she steals it and, you know, puts a report out, but then Henry Shearer steals her report. Yeah. Which, again, probably the genuinely a line that I kind of made fun of, but now I kind of genuinely like, yeah. which is where... Henry Shearer. Well, because earlier in the movie, to set this up, I know exactly what you're talking about, where Jean Reno is, and that's the thing, you don't know, Jean Reno, even though it's kind of, it's if, pretty, you've seen, it's, if you've seen any movie, like, you kind of realize what's going on, but Jean Reno is basically where, he's like French Secret Service, yeah. and uh, he's like, also investigating this Godzilla incident, and he comes across one of the guys that was on the Japanese fishing vessel yeah. uh, attacked at the thing, and, and, and a scene I actually always kind of liked as a kid, where he's just like, they're trying to find out this guy. He's like just stricken with fear, and then like he lights a flame. He's like, "What did you see, old man?" And then the old man's like, "Gojira, Gojira." And I, that again, always it's, stuck it's in my another, head. It's actually like again, if this were a movie where actually Godzilla appeared, yeah. that would actually be a better, even a better scene. But that implies that the legend of Godzilla exists yes. in this world. But yeah. that's a whole other thing. That's a whole yeah. other thing. But anyway, so she that's part of the tape that she shows and like that she has. So like all the information about like where it movement were and it's pregnant. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And all this sort of stuff. And then she's like, oh, I, I submitted this big report. We're going to, you know, we're going to do this. And then when she watches the report in the bar, it's Henry Shearer just has recorded, you know, the whole right, thing right, herself. Right, 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 yeah. And but Henry Shearer in his report as an asshole news reporter keeps calling it Godzilla, and then Audrey's just like, "It's Gojira, you moron!" And it's funny because like I genuinely enjoy that line. Yeah, I definitely think that that's like a little. It's like kind of in that cute realm. Well, you would have loved it because that was actually uh, the production uh, got shirts that said "It's Gojira, you moron." I would, I would get for that pro- shirt. Yeah, let's go on eBay and see if we can find. Uh, one of those, uh, one of those shirts. Uh, I think uh, some of the other, the only remaining notable characters we should talk oh, about is okay. Mayor is, Ebert. Is Mayor and, Ebert and, and his, his assistant Gene? <laughs> Can you explain this to me, please? Okay, so 
there is the mayor who's basically the uh, mayor from Jaws. Yeah. He plays that role of like this, which to be fair, like they like that dynamic, even though it's cliched and it's trite, like, I mean, it was effective for what it was where like he's playing like the asshole. It's just like we, we got to like just just bomb it and get everybody back in the city. Like, let's just cover this yeah. up as fast as we can and like being extremely unreasonable. Right. And he's basically he's the- running for reelection and like he's having a speech while Godzilla first attacks and then. You know, and he's like, you, you know how crazy it is that you had evacuated all this people out of the city? Well, now you can't find him, so he's probably gone. So let's bring everybody back. Let's get this done with. Yeah. Um. So, uh, what, what was I? What was I? Gonna, oh, but it's like, I was also going to say, like, it, it allowed for him and Kevin Dunn to yell at each other mm-hmm. in very, like, action movie ways, which I, I kind of appreciated. But, uh, so anyway, uh, I was waiting to see how long this would take you to figure out because, uh, Mayor Ebert and his assistant Gene are indeed unapologetically, very clearly uh, modeled after reviewers. Uh, <laughs> uh, Gene Siskel and Robert Ebert. Roger Ebert. Roger Ebert. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and uh, very, they, they, very, very uncanny. Because then once, once they just realize that, it's like, oh well, they do look like those two, like the two of them. Yeah, and it took, I think, at one point where I, I, oh, it was the. Uh, the ad or whatever that said like uh mayor ebert gives it a thumbs up or yes, something like that it's, and then, a, it's a kind of a close-up of a cab it was so funny when that happened because all you said all i could hear nick was like wait a minute and i said we'll talk about it um so basically uh devlin and emmerich enter like put these characters in the script as kind of like a shout out slash dig to and some people think like it's kind of like a mocking making fun of them a little bit uh they um did not receive their film their earlier film stargate that well and they think that that may have been a reason i forgot rolling number to start yeah he did yeah both of them um so they both um yeah, so th- that led to them being put in the movie in a more mocking way, uh, and I mean, right down to the, they mock the thumbs up, thumb mm-hmm. like thumbs, thumbs down. Up, yeah. Like at one point, like like Gene, the assistant, was like, "You know what I think of you?" Thumb, like puts his thumbs up and then puts his thumbs down. <laughs> and they were just like, "What?" So then, um, uh, uh, Eber and uh, Siskel, who uh, obviously didn't like the movie, uh, were. Um, Thought thought this was a very petty move on Emmerich yeah, and Devlin's part, uh, which Emmerich and Devlin at that time in their career were considered very petty about things like that. Uh, but they did uh, they did make the really funny um, observation that it's like, why go through the trouble of having us in the movie to make fun of us if you're not going to have like Godzilla kill us? <laughs> You know what that makes? Yeah, like, well, you, but that's also like, like, even, was like, like at least do that. Like, if like, you're gonna do this, but that's like you don't even get that in this movie because like usually like these big American like monster movies like even like in Jurassic Park like the assholes kind of get their comeuppance. You know what I mean? Like you know they're, they're sure like, yeah. they're like get attacked by like the dinosaurs or they get killed by the monster. And it's like neither the mayor, neither Mayor Ebert or Gene or even Henry Shearer like really get their true comeuppance in this movie. It's yeah. basically well, like, no, she quits. Remember? Well, yeah, but like you know, it's really their comeuppance is just people being snotty to them. Yeah, at the end. But that's what I mean. Yeah. It's like you know, even if it's a kill, like you should more so like. Like it's not like Henry Shearer like gets exposed as an asshole like where like you know the the cliche but better version of this is like oh like she like hacks like Gene Reno hacks the broadcast at the end where it shows like a tape of Henry Shearer being like 
you know, dismissive to her, like, that was filming earlier, and then, like, he gets, like, everybody, like, hates him now or something like that, or he gets right. killed in, in the thing. But it's just, like, you don't really get that fun, like, oh, like, he really got, they really got him there. It's just more so, like, everything about the characters and stuff is like, oh, yeah, now they're they're doing this. They're yeah, kind. I mean, it's kind of like, because if you really think about it, like, that doesn't really happen too much even in Independence Day, where it's, like, they don't, it, like, an Independence Day doesn't track characters in that way. Yeah. It, like, kind of, like, takes all the characters along the way for the right, because when you think about it even like the characters the the least likable characters in that movie are just made fun of ultimately yeah. like nobody like really like gets like a, a true comeuppance which again and I, I don't mean to say because actually one of my least favorable tropes and I've been noticing this in movies recently where they overdo a character being mean so it justifies like oh so you don't feel bad if they die yeah. and I kind of don't like no, that no, no I don't, I'm not just saying that but yeah. it's just like it is kind of funny there though there is still like a kind of a fun element to that type of deal you know oh yeah no I, I completely get it um so um, the 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 one other thing I did want to talk about because because it has become like a much derided point of this movie is the Godzilla babies. Yes, the pregnancy and the eggs. Yeah, and- where and to be quite fair, I that's actually the part of the movie I enjoy the most. Uh, like it is it, very. It does feel like the part of the movie where like the direction like of all those characters does feel like the most. Like the third act, the ending is the part of the movie where there, everything does kind of feel like it, it has a little bit of momentum. Because mm-hmm. um, even like to go over to the previous like attack stuff, there is just kind of an aimlessness to kind of what's going on yes. with like the Godzilla attacks. Yeah, I agree. Um, in terms of there's big breaks in between them, and then there's like the military has all these ideas of like. You know, they do the thing where they have the, the, the jets come in, but the heat-seeking missiles don't work, and they keep this, like... And then all the like all the big destruction by of the city of all the famous icons is really just human doing, like mm-hmm. the Chrysler building and mm-hmm. all this sort of stuff. That's is the just, goddamn Chrysler building we're talking about. <laughs> and it wasn't even, like, it's one of your own guys showing up. <laughs> but it's just like, but there's an aimlessness to it, and, and but the third act and the stuff in Madison Square Garden, where everything's finally kind of coming together. yeah is the one point in this movie where there is kind of momentum finally kind of coming up. But I also will say that the part where all the Godzilla babies, like the part where all the Godzilla babies hatch is kind of actually kind of a, a cool like moment. Yeah. No, it I, is yeah. a very cool moment, but the, and the, there are, the there, animatronics are pretty yeah, cool in that moment. As there well. are enjoyable parts of like kind of the stalking of Madison square garden where like the babies are stalking all the, you know, page, you know, all the, all of our heroes, but it is very much like an offshoot of like, the raptors in Jurassic Park sure, or sure. like Predator or like Aliens or something like that. Yeah, I think that I actually because I I, I like I or I'm at least entertained by all that stuff in Madison Square Garden. And then when at this point in the movie, they think they've killed Godzilla. Um, yes. It's Gojira, you moron. Uh, but uh, they uh, they think they killed the Godzilla and then the Godzilla ends up not being killed. And then this is after they've killed all the baby Godzillas. Or so they think. Or, yeah, so they think. And then, like, Godzilla gets upset, and then they start doing a big chase throughout New York. And I'm not saying, like, this saves the movie. I'm not saying it's even the most compelling of things that have happened in the Godzilla canon. I'm just saying that at this point, it's a very simple to the point. We have all of our characters together. Half of them have fun personalities. And at least, like, it's, an, and, it's like, a more even, like, entertaining... Hank, Hank Azaria and Jean Reno get to, like, bounce off each other. Yeah. And there's, like, kind of some fun moments with him taking the cab and all around like that. There is a kind of a dynamic where if those characters were a little bit more fleshed out, mm-hmm. but you don't really get that anywhere else in the movie except for like Hank, who's trying. 
uh, even though he does sound like Mo yeah. at some point. Yeah, um, uh, it's funny. Like um, Hank Azaria has admitted that at times in the movie that he may have accidentally slipped into his Mo voice from The Simpsons. Uh, it's funny that we're mentioning all this because Devlin himself uh, has actually said that he finds one of the faults of the movie being that he feels that they don't really explore any of their characters until it's too late in the in the film. Yeah, I mean, and you feel I would that. partially agree with that, but I do think it comes. It it, it really shines a light on that fault that like like you don't really find out who John Reno is until like way late in the Cause, movie cuz they keep then... teasing it cuz like his whole thing was like he keeps appearing in different places you know what this is this is exactly me always saying the best part of Independence Day is the interplay between Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith. And then you realize that does not happen until the third act yeah. of the movie. Like, they don't meet until – like, they have no relation to each other, and then they just meet They're in on the opposite sides of, yeah. like, the, the – the, And that's, yeah. like, the best – and it's very similar to that, yeah. except this is not as fun. I was gonna, yeah. what, was, what else was – oh, but, you know, one – I've kept mentioning about these personalities, right? Yeah. I keep mentioning these characters that don't have any personalities. And I think the biggest flaw in translating this into a – you know, making a Godzilla movie is that the Godzilla monster is just so not – it has no personality to it. Mm-hmm. It is just a giant lizard. Yeah. That is just like... Which again, but again, they don't... That's another thing that's added late in the thing where they, they add some sort of empathy to it. Where it's like, and then it's way too late yeah, in the movie. But it's like, but like even then, it really... You don't... One, one of the key points of Godzilla as a character throughout all those Toho movies we've watched is that whether he's a destructor or a protector, there's a certain kind of personality that he presents. Even mm-hmm. in that original 54 of just like this kind of... this, this what, what it represents... No matter what those movies did, whether they were good or bad, mm-hmm. Godzilla had a specific personality to it. And it's just so cold in this movie that it really is just like, oh, well, we just need to make this monster because we need to make it, you know, real in nature. So it's just like, yeah, it's just a monster that's running around. It, and there, it, it is funny just, that you say that because Devlin has admitted that that was intentional, but he feels that in retrospect, that was a mistake. Yeah. And it's just like, that's what really is like the disappointing thing about this movie. Yeah. And like, that's really what, it, even if you did all these interpretations, if you really, but the, but even in just making it a giant monster movie. That's what makes all the other giant monster movies, you know, and these monster attack movies so memorable. Whether it's, you know, Godzilla or a Gamera yeah. or Yongri uh, from Korea mm-hmm. or, you know, any of these types of things. Whether it's even... That's <laughs> just a mystery science Yeah, no, I know, I know. Um, but <laughs> even, like, even Jurassic Park. Like, Jurassic Park, like, it has these, you know, these dinosaurs that are, you know, realistic kind of dinosaurs, but you still have that, you know, you still kind of get, like, the, you know, the sneaky personality of the raptors and, you know, kind of the majestic nature of how the T-Rex is presented. Like, you still, even if they're just these d- creatures, the way that the movie frames them gives them personality. Yeah. And it's like, that's really what Emmerich doesn't do. Well, is that do- Emmerich, even if Emmerich wants to make this a realistic creature, there are ways to frame it and ways to present it in which you still bring the majesty and the and the presentation and that personality to it and it just doesn't well to, to i mean to give credit where credit's due there are moments when they when they attempt to do that and they do kind of take the steps to be like it's just laying eggs it's just trying to eat fish and it's not necessarily just going and indiscriminately destroying things uh but the issue is like all that is kind of like 
there's no subtext to any of it. No, there's just it's yeah. just like text where it's like, yeah, I guess like because you could argue that it's there, but like, but when that happens and those moments pass and it's just like the rest of it is just sandwiched in, like we just got to kill it. Yeah. Like, well, cause, and cause, I get what they're going for, where he's trying to have those be un- these unspoken moments where the audience just all- is in all of that, but I, I feel like it's just. It's too drowned out by, ha- and it just feels like you really aren't making the point that you think you're making. But it's, even though, like, the, I do enjoy those scenes, right? Because you, like, even it's like, okay, well, it's like nuclear. You know, we oh, nuclear test created them, but there's not really, you know, obviously you don't get the nuclear breath. There's nothing that really indicates that the nuclear nature of it is really that important. It's just, it is just purely like, well, this is how it's go big, yeah, because you know other creatures get so big. And like then, if and, the if the if the Nick character was showing more sympathy for it like this whole time yeah. or if they really bared down on this like there's just a lot of ways that they could have explored yeah, this aspect of like this is just a creature and like you know even though we have to get rid of it like you know but there is just this kind of like and yeah, then, it, it's weird that's what's so and this is honestly the last thing I'll say about it that scene is maybe indicative of the the issue the the core issue of this movie I feel because listen I can get over the fact that it, even though it's annoying that it doesn't have any reference to Godzilla, like, I mean, like, fine, like, they kind of took this weird direction that makes that annoying, but whatever, I'll look at it as its own monster movie, but what really doesn't make it work for me is, like, because that moment is directed and filmed as, look how beautiful this is, like, the music and everything, what's being said is, like, marvel at this wonder, and, like, and... You can go into the danger after that, but it's just funny. Like, it's not really delving into what that means. And, and it's funny because they do the whole thing where they – and I think that's actually a kind of a cool plot device that they do – they film it that everybody can see it. Yeah. But then it's just sandwiched by everybody being like, yay, they're dead. So <laughs> it's like, well, like, what? Like, yeah. what are you doing? It's just totally – like, in the moment, yeah. kind of, it makes sense, but, like, ultimately – flat let's see like last thing is to talk about you know just wrap it up uh, i was really scared that hank azaria was gonna die early when he gets stepped on but like oh the yeah, fact yeah. that he like doesn't is kind of ridiculous but it's yeah. kind of a nice little moment mm-hmm. um i oh the i i do gotta mention that they do the they do this really weird thing where they have this one military this other military like agent guy um, or like you know this one soldier that like is kind of keeps appearing, but he keeps like screwing up, or he, he shoots too early, or he like jumps the gun on everything. Yeah, yeah. And then at the end, they give him this moment where, you know, the Kevin Dunn's general like contacts him. It's like he's dead, sir. And then and then like you know what, soldier, you did a good job. Yeah. And the guy's like, oh yeah, I did. He it. does the the Akbar like oh like we we, like, yeah. we but did it's just it. so weird because it's not as if like. You know, the movie wasn't presenting him as like, oh, I want to get this promotion or like, oh, I like, I really want to make, you know, this guy I, proud. I think that's Emmerich trying to do his human moment of yeah. just a no, normal but it's just, guy. It is just weird. It's just weird. Yeah. Um, I it, didn't mind that as much. Um, I also like, because they eventually kill Godzilla at the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, yeah, like that, that third act chase has really some fun moments and stuff like that. Um, this thing got high beams. <laughs> We are in his mouth. We are in his mouth. <laughs> and uh, yeah, uh, Hank Azaria is like missing his tape and Jean Rito calls him on the phone like, listen, I'll give it back. I just got to delete some things that implicate the French government. So, hey. yeah. But then also it's like one of those things where like, again, the movie just kind of ends where 
even like you know, you don't even get the sense of like, oh, like where are these people going off to now? Which I guess makes sense now that they're like, we're gonna make two sequels to it. Mm-hmm. But it really just ends. It's like I quit. Ha ha ha. We're all good. And then yeah. it cuts to the one last egg that survived the big explosion. Of, of course, we had to get the big kind of White House esque explosion of Madison Square Garden, mm-hmm. um, which you know, it's like what what Emmerich was really known for. Yeah. Which to be time. fair, like because they don't really do it that much. Like I was like, oh yeah, big yeah. big explosion. Uh, but then like there was one egg that somehow mysteriously miraculously survived. Yeah. Uh, and it starts to hatch. Cut to credits as like you know the most 90s version of a credits yeah. like plays where it's you get like the score Puff, you, Puff Daddy's you uh, Come like, With Me come with stars me. plays yeah. um, I mean listen I, I actually I, I will go on record by saying I do enjoy the third act of this movie just from a pure like dumb entertainment level but like overall like this movie is just whatever yeah. to me it like, does, it, okay. like and maybe it's because a little bit of the nostalgia of it just being in my life for so much but I don't watch it and I don't find it that offensive or dumb it's just kind of like all right whatever this movie sir shockingly has stuck with me a little bit Mm -hmm. in the sense that like when we first watched it i i texted one of my friends or one of our friends texted him guys like why would you ever want to watch this now gazelle 98 in 4k because you were talking about getting the blue it's coming out in uh blu-ray 4k 4K. on steelbook yeah and now it's it's kind of talking about it and thinking about it over the past couple of days. It has kind of risen up my. It's not still on that not on that Batman and Robin level of of bad. It's good where I would genuinely watch it and to the point where I'm probably gonna go see Batman and Robin in theaters next month. Um, but it is on that level where it's like if you were decide to watch your 4K Blu-ray copy, I would sit down and watch this again mm-hmm. because I do think there's some some really bad elements that I enjoy. I do genuinely enjoy Hank Azaria and I do kind of think that. You know, kind of the some of the Madison Square Garden stuff, and the last chase at the end is good. Um, uh, all right, so we gotta talk about the post release. Wait, oh, who's Harrison Ford? All right, I got it. Okay, uh, who's Harrison Ford? Can he just be the president? <laughs> no, I, I've got one better. Okay, he's Ebert's. Uh, who's who's running against Ebert in the election? Uh-huh. And he's named after a critic that Roland Emmerich likes. <laughs> I like it. And somehow he ends up, he actually ends up getting killed for some reason. Like, and then like Ebert, like, you know, even though Ebert's the one that's hated, Ebert gets to slick away. No, they should, they should be like, they should always cut to him saying he's supporting, like, we have to keep the citizens safe. And like, as long as it takes for the military to do this thing. And like, he's like, we should listen to this Nick Totopoulos guy. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, sure. He's like, he, you know, sure. His name's out in the press, but these are dire times. (laughs) And he, you know, it's like, find those eggs. Yes, exactly. All right. Good. All right. So post-release. Um, so Nick, as we talked about, like the pre and post-release of this movie is the most interesting to me more so than the movie itself because the film's reception and legacy can only be described as disastrous because in some cases, Godzilla 98 became the poster boy of everything that can go wrong with both adaptations and big budget films, mm-hmm. which I think that that's undisputed like this movie is just it's infamous it's infamous for being like what the hell happened (laughs) with this big budget movie like everybody always talks about like in in many ways like this did more harm to the godzilla brand where it's like like godzilla is just like you you just can't do anything with it other than it being like it's silly little toho thing yeah like it's like when you really think about it from an american standpoint like Poor Godzilla is just has not. It's just not starting doing, all back in the Gigantus, the Fire Monster days. Yeah. It just has not been a good run. Um. So, um. 
the so the film uh, was critically panned. Uh, it earned half of what Sony was expected uh, for it to earn, uh, it, and it dropped more than fifty percent the following week. Uh, so it, it did make some money, but it was not the big smash hit. It was they not a. It, to it was not a real true success. Um, in terms of uh, so the reviews themselves, shared a pretty consistent through line of criticizing the weak, nonsensical story, the lack of any drama, the stale characters, and the overuse of special effects-driven action. Uh, and quite interestingly, though, several reviewers were actually savvy to the source material and did say that it would have probably been preferable if the film at least did the bare minimum of sticking to its campy, fun Saturday morning cartoon roots. Where yeah. So despite this movie, I think, doing a lot of harm to the Godzilla brand in America, there was this sense where I think people became more open to the fact of like, well, where's the guy in the suit and like destroying the buildings? Like, can we get that? Like, it's like, so in a weird way, even though it did harm, it actually gave more notoriety to what real Godzilla actually was. And I actually think that leads into where modern Godzilla going is now in now because, because of this movie, they want to avoid that and be a little bit more faithful to the source material. So yeah. uh, kind of a silver lining with that one. Um, Behind the scenes, though, there's a lot of interesting um, like reception to the movie. Robert Freed, uh, who was the uh, producer who, uh, you know, uh, championed the movie. championing uh, this movie to get made, uh, was very appalled and angered by the way that the movie turned out. And he had actually called it one of the worst cases of executive incompetence I have observed in my 20-year career. Uh, so he was just, he, he was not, not happy because he was like the guy, he was like, I want to see this movie get made. And they just completely, well, and, then, and it. you go up to the big boss and it's, you're the one who's telling them like, listen, this is, this is have a lot of, there's a lot of potential with this. You're mm -hmm. the, you're the one that's kind of in your, putting your neck out basically like, Hey, I'm going up to the top on this. Yeah. And then it turns out like this and you gave him full creative control and you hired a guy who doesn't like Godzilla. Like, it just seems like you would look at that, and it just seems like all of it would be... It just seems like when you're making this movie and all that happens, you just seem like you it's a bunch of red flags. Yeah. And even, like, Toho's, like, seeing a bunch of red flags, and even they can't really prevent this from happening. Um, Emmerich and Devlin actually, in retrospect, would admit a lot of fault with the movie, too. Um, Devlin, who is probably the most apologetic for the movie, mm -hmm. and he kind of takes that position of, like... In retrospect, he does feel like that they were very dismissive of the source material and that he feels that being a little bit more respectful of it would have like at least been a, been more fair to yeah. the Godzilla name in the movie. And he was a guy who was actively like kind of a petty asshole at the time. Yeah. Like and he would actually attack fans on message boards for not liking the movie. Like he was one of those guys. But oh, it does it does seem like he is one of those guys like, oh listen, like, yeah, we we, we messed Yeah, we messed this up. Like he I feel like if this movie had come out in a in a social media age, I think we would probably Ooh. know a little bit more yeah. about like kind of the defensiveness of that of it. Uh Emmerich he was, uh, he's no Ryan Johnson on Twitter, I'd say that <laughs> much. Uh Emmerich was uh, less apologetic but ultimately lamented the entire production of the film. He does, however, take pride that uh parents come up to him and say that, oh, out of all your movies this is the one my kids enjoy the most. So he did take a little bit of, of pride in that. Um, despite all of that, though, interestingly enough, though, the film fared way better in international markets, especially in the countries where Toho Godzilla did not have any um, recognition at all. And 
to that degree, TriStar's Godzilla actually became many countries' Godzilla for them, and that mm-hmm. was the one that they were exposed to. And uh, how unfortunate! Many of those uh, countries were actually uh, at the time awaiting and surprised because they weren't aware of like the disaster that this movie turned out to be, like critically and financially. Um, that uh, this small fan base actually was like looking forward to the sequels uh, mm-hmm. that were that were planned out. Um, unfortunately, uh, those sequels did not happen. Yeah. Uh, given the entire unfavorable response to it, the less than stellar box office and some creative differences, but more so the former uh, two uh, aspects. TriStar um, canceled uh, the trilogy. Um, some information on what that trilogy would have been uh, is out there. Emmerich had considered eventually using the monster island idea um though uh he said he didn't want to rush getting into that but he was open to doing something like that and uh emmerich and devlin actually commissioned a script uh that would involve uh the living offspring battling a giant insect in australia um but again none none of those plans uh came to fruition um, despite that, the movie did spawn an animated series called Godzilla the Series. Uh, and um, in this one, it followed up that um, the remaining uh, baby Godzilla actually uh, would be found by Nick Totopoulos and the creature would have imprinted on him thinking that it's his mother. And basically it was a series that was more in line with a classic Godzilla series of uh, defending the Earth from uh, earthly... Is it like all the characters, or it's just like Totopolis? It's only him. And actually, Kevin Dunn's general character comes back in it. But it's basically Godzilla fighting other monsters, both earthly and extraterrestrial. Um, And maybe that would be something that we will talk about at some point. Um, and uh, before we wrap up, uh, as we always talk about, we have to talk about the what has happened to our creature of of the of the movie. Like mm-hmm. you know, what what has been the legacy of the creature? Because as we've seen, the movie itself does not have a good legacy. No. it's a big it, it, it's a big mess, big failure uh, in, in many ways. But Gino himself has uh, continued to live on in some ways. The creature would uh, actually make appearances in many Godzilla comics as it as its own monster. And while Toho expressed much disappointment with how the movie turned out um they did uh find ways to incorporate uh this uh entire just movie into the canon in in uh in into future into future films uh some examples are in the 2001 film this is kind of moving ahead but it relates to this movie uh in the 2001 film uh godzilla mothra king Ghidorah, giant monsters all out attack uh, there, a soldier reports that a giant monster attack, uh, that there's been a giant monster attack in New York, and that the Americans are erroneously attributing it to the real Godzilla. Mm. <laughs> um, and then in 2004's Godzilla Final Wars, the creature who was recreated in the form of a very similar looking monster, this time named Zilla, uh, shared a very brief scene with the king this, of the monsters. This I do know about. I didn't know. About. I think we should just say at one point that's a movie where Godzilla fights a bunch of monsters controlled yeah. by aliens, and he fights Zilla, the who is reminiscent of the Godzilla from this movie, and it is uh, on record as being the shortest uh, fight that Godzilla has ever partaken in, mm-hmm. making, uh, uh, you know, taking care of the creature in, in quite a in quite an abrupt way. Yeah. Um, and that would actually mark the creature's official entry into the co- into the Toho Kaiju Pantheon as Zilla, uh, because Toho was able to take ownership after uh, Tri uh, Tristar's rights expired in two thousand three. 
Um, so, you know, going forward, as I said, that uh, Toho was very disappointed with how it turned out. Um, all the plans for uh, Sony's future films were canceled, and I think it was time for Toho to be like, this can't be the note that Godzilla goes out on. And uh, and that had led to Toho maybe picking up the crown for the King of the Monsters a lot sooner than they than, anticipated. Than, than they we, yeah, we've talked about that. They were they were very much like, oh, we'll take like a you know whatever a ten year or whatever. Yeah, they were ready to take a ten year, and it's like they didn't even last like four. Yeah, they're like, just like, well, okay, let's let's take control of our of our guy. So, but we will talk about that more uh, next time of how Toho responds uh, to this uh, film, but. Nick, that was the story of the infamous Godzilla in 1998. I definitely enjoyed talking about it. Yeah, I hope a bit of a packed episode, but I think uh, I think it was all worth it to yeah. get down to like what what what's going on here. So that's it for this one. Uh, and as we said, we'll see how Toho responds yes, as the next, next era. Next time, the next time as the next era of Godzilla begins, the millennium era mm-hmm. of Toho's Godzilla begins with Godzilla. 2000 what a title but that's not what we're talking about next we're talking about a bond movie next in which we're wrapping up the bond franchise we're wrapping up the bond canon yeah um the the official eon canon where's craig at um in specter yeah yeah that's it i mean it's specter yeah it's basically you you kind of are like uh per uh like embracing the attitude of that movie yeah specter (laughs) I, I, I am genuinely, one. I'm genuinely interested. I am interested in seeing, seeing, seeing like what I think about it. Um, okay, well, until then, uh, I'm done. Uh, we're done. You're done. Everybody's done. Mm-hmm. Um, we got plugs. Yes. Bonzillapod@gmail.com, Facebook.com/slash/bonzilla007, Twitter.com/slash/bonzilla007. Like and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, I finally saw that we had another review on iTunes, and it was a very nice review. So if you left it, thank you. Thank you, person. And. Uh, very new, it's a very New York attitude sometimes in, in, in this movie. Yo, yo, we got a Godzilla over here. I'm going to kill him. He's yo. a hero, but I'm going to kill him. Yo, I'm walking here. Godzilla, your big foot's in the way. I'm walking here. <laughs> we got a giant foot here. Mm-hmm. All right, goodbye, everybody. Come with me. And it's Godzilla, you moron. Moron.